Stanford University. Tonight it gives me special uh, pleasure and privilege to introduce to you uh, Christopher de Pelag. If you have been following Iran, uh, I, I don't think he needs any introduction. I think without any exaggeration, at least in my view, he is the most informed uh, Western journalist writing about Iran. I wish we could have had him talk about in Persian. You would see why he is so informed. Uh, he's informed because he not only read at Cambridge, but has lived uh, in Iran, and more importantly, is married to a Persian artist whose work is now at exhibit at the Cantor Hall. Uh, the book he's going to be talking about, uh, The Patriot of Persia, is a remarkable book on a subject that most Iranians think they know everything about. Uh, you will be all very surprised. There is much that we didn't know about that history that he has uncovered and has written in a beautiful, uh, enticing, inviting, suspenseful prose that is his particular style. So uh, I strongly urge you to read the book uh, if you're interested in modern Iranian history, uh, whether you are a supporter of Mossadegh or a detractor, you will find many, many uh, interesting things. And if you are neither of those, it is one of the best introductions to modern Iranian history you can find in a bookshelf. The book is available, and I think you will kindly sign a few copies uh, after the talk. So it is my great pleasure to welcome Mr. <laughs> Um, I'm going to try and. No, no, I'm not. I, the thing is that I prefer the sort of evangelical style out the front. <laughs> How about if I just take that out? There we are.
Is that better? Yes. Right, and I can read as well. So, um, the other thing I should tell you before we begin is that I did not put my slides into a PowerPoint presentation, so I will be jumping around a bit. I hope you forgive that. So, um, here he is, the great man. Around the time my book, Patches of Persia, came out, I was interviewed by NPR. And Steve Inskeep mentioned to me that when he'd last been in Tehran, someone had told him that Iran should stop harping back to the coup of August 1953, and that the Americans should get over the fact that their embassy was invaded in 1979. Only then could relations between the two countries approach something like normalcy. And I found myself reflecting on this remark, and I've heard it echo in the way that the book has been received. It's been commended for its topicality. Mohammed Mossadegh was born in 1882, and he occupied the centre of world affairs more than half a century ago. It's unlikely that a new biography of Gandhi or of Nasser or, or of any of the other great anti-colonialists would be received in this way. So something about relations between Iran and the West has produced this state of affairs. But of what do these relations consist? Nothing. There are none of the state visits, or the commercial to and, and froing, or the unhonest cultural cock-ups that keep ties between countries in a constant state of flux and renewal. No, the vista before us has no such reassuring features. In the case of Iran and the United States, what we see is a barren tableland, struck with barbed wire and unexploded bombs, with two massive carbuncular growths standing in the middle, throwing their distorted shadows around. One of these mountains is March, marked 1953, and the other 1979. The opposite of obsessing about the past, of course, is to forget it altogether. As a Briton, it never ceases to amaze me that Tony Blair somehow managed to convince the American public that he was a man of substance. One of Blair's achievements as Prime Minister was to go through most of his tenure without being aware that there ever existed a man called Mohammed Mossadegh. When a distinguished journalist friend of mine um, suggested to the then Prime Minister that Iran's prickly attitude towards the West might partly be ascribed to bitter memories of Mossadegh's overthrow, Blair asked who Mossadegh was. Even after finding out, he did not seem to value this piece of information. Oh, he exclaimed, they're not still banging on about that, are they? I'm now going to scroll forward to that. So, I'm going to introduce him briefly, because although the sight of his mournful face and billiard ball head unlocks for many Iranians a store of memories and emotions, he is less known among Americans than he was. His mother was royal, a member of the ruling Bajar house. His father, who died when Mossadegh was a boy, was a very senior Mandarin. His education started traditionally enough and became progressive, especially the bits of it that took place in France and Switzerland. Persia at the time was trying with indifferent success to modernize, acquiring a parliament, losing it again, reacquiring it, and so on. 
The country was not formally colonized, but it was in important ways under the sway of Britain and its great imperial rival, Russia. The powers lent the Shah money, set up and toppled governments, and set in, sent in the troops if their interests were under threat. And this state of affairs had a great effect on patriotic politicians like Mossadegh. They wanted their country to be free of the powers and the Shah to rule as a constitutional monarch. But generally, the Shahs and the powers came together to ensure that this did not happen. Iran's relations with Britain need some introduction. The extreme, almost pathological hatred that Iranian patriots felt for Britain and their fear of Albion's hidden hand is easily caricatured. For much of the 20th century, no government minister lost his job in Tehran without it being said, the British tired of him. Expatriate students glimpsing the white cliffs of Dover for the first time experienced unsettling palpitations and presentiments. There was something about the damp little island that was both repellent and entrancing. In the majestic logic and stability of its institutions, it showed the way, and yet its policies, its interests, and its representatives were somehow morally contaminated. You don't know how evil they are, Mossadegh told Avril Harriman in 1951. You do not know how they contaminate everything they touch. What was so odious about British involvement in Persia? Was it any more odious than that of the Soviets with their block-headed shows of force and promotions of local communism? It was partly the serial interference, as if it were a natural right in local politics and power arrangements. It was partly the claim made by British officials to be pursuing Persia's interests while, in fact, they pursued their own. It's not difficult to imagine the outraged reaction in Britain if it were disclosed that an Iranian company had been influencing ministerial appointments in Whitehall and bribing newspaper editors to run articles in its favour. And yet this is precisely what employees of Britain's biggest overseas asset, the Anglo-Iranian oil company, had been doing at the midpoint of the 20th century. Where's Reza Shogun? There he is. To leap forward then, Mossadegh survived his own courageous opposition to the dictatorship of Reza Shah, seen here during his rise to power in the 1920s. He almost died in one of Reza's prisons, and the mental health of his beloved daughter Khadija was irreparably damaged by the brutal circumstances of his incarceration. Mossadegh was an old man by the time Reza was deposed by the Allied occupiers in 1941, and his career seemed to be over. But the accession of Reza's 22-year-old son, Mohammad Reza, seemed like an opportunity for Iranian Democrats such as Mossadegh to constrain the monarchy, to pressure the Shah to reign, not to rule. This and the retrenchment of the British Empire on all fronts the beginning of the Cold War, and the growing conviction that Iran's oil fields constituted a commercial and a moral asset which must be repatriated for the country to achieve real independence, all these things brought Mossadegh back into the limelight. 
In many ways, Mohammad Reza was a tragic figure, sensitive and intelligent, but taking no pleasure from the burdens of his station. In a purely constitutional monarch, his vanity and indecision might have passed unnoticed, but he had no intention of being a constitutional monarch. Whenever a competent and ambitious man rose in politics, the Shah saw, saw a new threat to his ambition to rule directly and to be the nation's father figure. But the Shah could not be the father of Iran. He was ill at ease with his subjects and hid behind ceremonial. Mossadegh outshone the Shah as a democrat and a patriot. His relations with ordinary people were natural and spontaneous. He had straightforward political aims, to take control of the oil industry, to build respectful but arm's length ties with the West and with the communist bloc, and to kick the monarch out of politics. But the British would not easily give up control of their asset, and the Shah would not give up the prerogatives he enjoyed. Two collisions were brewing. From the sidelines, another actor pondered how to get involved. The United States, homeland of Howard Baskerville and of Morgan Schuster, Americans who had bravely supported the aspirations of patriotic, reform-minded Iranians. President Woodrow Wilson, of course, had robustly opposed Lord Curzon's scheme for a protectorate in 1919. All in all, there was something immensely attractive about the gallantly adolescent superpower, a combination of unbelievable strength and vitality, immense but unworldly. Iran made overtures. America refused to commit. This, this was partly down to the opposition of the British, who regarded Iran as their province and guarded their political influence as well as their effective monopoly over the southern oil fields. It was also down to the tension within America between isolationism and the desire to dominate world affairs. The end of World War II revealed a new order. Britain had been exhausted by combat. The empire was collapsing gently. A transfer of power was underway from London to Washington, and, at this, and this at a time of acute American apprehension over a new menace, communism. The Korean War started in 1950. At home, there was a red under every bed. It was the beginning of McCarthyism. President Harry Truman feared that Iran would be the communists' next target. If we stand by, he said, they'll move into Iran and they'll take over the whole of the Middle East. It's easy to say now that these fears were exaggerated. The main thing to note about communism in the Muslim world is that it rarely attracted mass support. Muslim countries already had a mass movement, Islam. But the Americans were fixated by Iran's Communist Party, the Tudeh, and Mossadegh and the British knew it. Both sides would try and turn the American fixation to their advantage. In March 1951, Mossadegh steered an oil nationalization bill through Parliament. This meant that Iran's vast oil industry no longer belonged to a British company paying the British exchequer millions of pounds in taxes every year and Iran a far smaller sum in royalties. It now belonged to Iran, and Mossadegh offered to compensate the company for its loss. In April, he overcame his famous aversion to office and became prime minister 
with the aim of implementing nationalism, nationalization. He'd been something of a dandy as a young man. Now came flaming old age, with its truculent honesty and its absence of pretension. He was an accomplice in his own caricature, defying the British Empire, wearing a pair of pyjamas and lying in an iron bed. He was a tremendous hypochondriac and would peri periodically announce that he was about to die. Western visitors found him cackling on his haunches or lying low with his hands fluttering up and down under his neck. Wily, weepy old Mossadegh represented the seriously erratic side of the Oriental mind. And as they had done with Gandhi before him, the British made the mistake of underestimating him. He declined a salary and paid his own passage when representing Iran abroad. He refused to be called Excellency or to use the Prime Ministerial limousine. One of his first acts upon coming to power was to order the police chief not to pursue any newspaper editor for insulting the Prime Minister. His commitment to freedom of speech was, has rarely been equaled anywhere in the Middle East. One day, the Prime Minister's wife and her driver were stopped by a traffic policeman after entering a street with a no-entry sign. When he was informed who was in the back of the car, the policeman said, I don't care who it is, and insisted on a fine being paid. Mossadegh's wife was cross, and when she got home, she gave Mossadegh the policeman's name. Mossadegh immediately phoned the chief of police and had the officer in question promoted to be head of the traffic police. <laughs> the British had refused to accept the fait accompli, and they persuaded the Truman administration to participate in an oil embargo. The Americans did not like the idea of nationalization becoming a precedent in countries where their own oil companies were active. Gradually, Iran's oil revenues dried up and politics degenerated. There was chaos in the streets and fisticuffs in Parliament. The communists flexed their muscles, organizing strikes and propaganda, while the Shah rigged parliamentary elections. This is one of my favorite photos. It shows the kind of mobs that were being whipped up by Mossadegh's opponents. Look at the weapons and the slightly basic expressions on the participants' faces. Mossadegh gave perhaps his best performance here in America. Truman and Aitchison, Truman and Aitchison received him with the dignity that was due a man who carried Iran's fate. He charmed ordinary Americans and administration officials alike and outwitted the Britain's representative of the United Nations, silver-tongued Sir Gladwin Jebb. During a Security Council debate, Jebb farcically depicted Iran's actions in nationalizing its oil industry as a threat to world peace. Mossadegh observed that it was Britain that had a flotilla of warships in the Persian Gulf. Iran, he said memorably, has stationed no gunships in the Thames. The Security Council was convinced, and Britain was obliged to shell the resolution it had tabled against Iran. In New York, Mossadegh and his personal doctor, his son, Ghulam Hussein, stayed in the New York hospital. Father and son had their own suite on the 16th floor, where the Prime Minister was spoiled by an army of doctors and nurses, and where he received, beside besides visiting diplomats from various countries, 
a team of American negotiators trying to broker a deal between Iran and the British. All went well until Ghulam Hussein learned from the pages of a local newspaper that the suite occupied by the Prime Minister cost the princely sum of $450 a night. Mossadegh was aghast when he found out. What have we gone and done, he exclaimed, he exclaimed and he dispatched Ghulam Hussein to inform the hospital administrators of his imminent departure. The doctors protested. They had not completed their tests, for which they gallantly proposed to waive all fees. The Mossadets also insisted, and Ghulam Hussein was dispatched to buy parting gifts for the doctors. And so, having borrowed $5,000 from an expatriate businessman, and arranged for more money to be wired from Tehran, father and son finally extricated themselves from the tender attentions of the New York hospital. $14,000 and several Iranian carpets poorer. It was a diplomatic triumph, and it made Mossadegh No. Sorry. It was a diplomatic triumph, and it made Mossadegh even more famous around the world. But to what end? Agreement between the two sides remained out of reach, and all the while, the British were not idle. At the beginning of 1952, the embassy in Tehran harboured at least four spies, along with Robert Zainer, a lecturer in Persian at Oxford, who had been brought in to stir things up. Zainer and his colleagues intrigued against the government, distributed bribes, and sounded out alternative prime ministers. Further up the food chain, the Shah was being pressed to support a decisive push against Mossadegh, but had characteristically refused to commit. Into this world, flinting, flinting, but murky, outsiders dropped at their peril. When Kingsley Martin, the editor of the New Statesman, a British magazine, asked Zeno at a cocktail party in Tehran what book he might read to enlarge his understanding of Tehran, Zeno suggested Alice through the looking glass. Oil was a prize, but over the course of 1952, America became the means. After October, when Mossadegh closed down the British Embassy in response to the usual intrigues, the British found that their ability to undermine him, undermine him was limited. They needed the Americans, with their embassy and their spies, to do the heavy lifting. By this time, I think neither the British nor Mossadegh were wholehearted in their attempts to find a negotiated compromise. The British assured the Americans that Mossadegh was driving Iran into communist hands. Mossadegh told the Americans that the country would fall into communist hands unless his government was given cash and support. The Americans were worried. But there had been a decisive change in personnel in the White House and in Downing Street. Eisenhower and Churchill were now leading the free world, pictured here with Dulles, the new Secretary of State, and Edith, once again Britain's Foreign Secretary. There's nothing timid about this group. Churchill was fed up by being bossed around by the Persians. Eisenhower needed little convincing that Mossadegh was a menace and that he should go. The Allies had a replacement Prime Minister waiting in the wings. Fazal Zahedi, a retired general who promised to solve the oil dispute and to crack down on the Tudeh. The Shah was the last element. Over the spring and summer of 1953, 
His relations with Mossadegh deteriorated beyond repair, and he allowed himself to be drawn into a coup that was already in an at a, that was already at an advanced stage of planning. Unwittingly, Mossadegh helped the conspirators. His intransigence as a negotiator had won Britain's attention, but his principles became a straitjacket, and the Americans no longer believed that he wanted a deal. His second misjudgment concerned the Shah. The Shah had by now abandoned all hopes of mastering events, and he spent his time playing canasta and, re and reading detective novels. But Mossadegh regarded him as a danger and snubbed him repeatedly, until in the end he came to believe, quite erroneously, that his throne was under threat. Only then, and with a heavy heart, did he join the conspiracies. Finally, Mossadegh was unwise in the latitude he gave to the communist two-day party. He hoped that the spectacle of two-day demonstrations and strikes would convince Eisenhower to protect his government. The opposite happened. They convinced America that Mossadegh was being propped up by the communists and that he should go. Tim Roosevelt was the CIA man who wrote the first published account of the events of August the 15th to 19th, 1953, a jovial tale of some resourceful Ivy Leaguers, moonlit assignations, and a little bucking up at the crucial moment. There have since been other accounts moderating Roosevelt's admiring self-portrait or recasting events as a spontaneous uprising in favor of the Shah. The first thing to say is that the coup was not a jolly jape, but evolved into a hideous plan calling for maximum loss of life and containing ample provision for a civil war. The second is that the main personality of these days was not Roosevelt or Zahedi or the mobs on the street. It was Mossadegh. The coup found its form according to his personality and it was defeated and then revived according to his conscience. Shortly before midnight, on August the 15th, Hossein Fatemi, Iran's foreign minister, was brushing his teeth when his wife let out a piercing scream. Rushing out of the bathroom, Fatemi found his, found his home was full of soldiers. The minister was taken away in an army truck and told that he would be executed at dawn. He asked one of his jailers, who could have put you up to this? The answer came back, who else but the Shah? The Shah had signed two orders. One dismissing Mossadegh and the other appointing General Zahedi in his place before going off to a holiday home in the hills. But the plotters had bungled. Their main target, General Riyahi, the head of the army, slipped out of their hands. Mossadegh received prior warning. By the time the head of the Royal Guard arrived at Mossadegh's house at 109 Palace Street to deliver the dismissal notice and presumably to take the Prime Minister into custody, solid defences were in place. The head of the Royal Guard was himself arrested. Cabinet ministers were roused from their beds and summoned to Palace Street. They were joined by Fatemi, who had been freed. At 7 a.m., news of the foiled coup was broadcast on the radio. In the hills, the Shah and Queen Soraya decided to flee. They went by a small airplane to the Caspian coast, where a large craft was standing by. Soon the royal couple were in the air again. By lunchtime, they were in Baghdad. Back in Palace Street, sitting with his colleagues, Mossadegh faced the task of his life. The departure of the Shah had left a hole in Iran that he could fill as he saw fit. The country's system of government, 
its orientation in foreign affairs, all could be planned anew. But would it be wise to do so? Economically, the country was on its knees. Iran would eventually have to find a market for it, a market for its oil, and that market could only be the West. The Prime Minister's job was now to narrow the possibilities. He must calm his excitable supporters and prevent the two-day party from manipulating events. Above all, he must be aware of any attempt to revive the coup. A younger and fitter man might have felt freed by the unexpected turn of events, but Mossadegh was exhausted by the cares of office. Furthermore, he had not changed, even if the circumstances had. Whatever his feelings for Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, he had made his oath to preserve the crown in all sincerity and could not lightly abandon it. The struggle for the future of Iran started that morning behind closed doors. Radicals like Fatimi demanded regime change. They wanted a republic. Mossadegh was resistant, but the Shah had fled after conspiring against his own prime minister. It would be hard to put the case for his return. The constitution provided for a regency council in the Shah's absence, but it was the Shah's job to appoint one. Should elections be held to do the job for him? Between August the 15th and August the 19th, these questions were examined minutely by the Prime Minister and his coterie, and the spectre of a republic would not fade away. By the evening of August the 18th, everything suggested that the Shah and his dynasty were doomed. The Shah's brothers were under house arrest. His portrait had been removed from the ministries and his name erased from the Staff College Oath. Also on August the 18th, he and the Queen flew even further away, to Rome. The Queen bought a dress in which to face the media. Here it is. The young couple were already planning a new life in the United States. At dawn on August the 19th, Mossadegh summoned his interior minister and ordered preparations to be made for nationwide elections to a three-man regency council. Iran was a republic in all but name. And yet, August the 19th would end with Mossadegh's defeat and the monarchy triumphant. How did it happen? For the answer to that question, we must return to the failed coup of four days before. Mossadegh's first error after that was to allow his supporters to get out of control. That same afternoon, they held a victory rally, and incendiary speeches were delivered. The crowd shrieked, death to the treacherous Shah. Then there was violence. The window of a photographer's studio was shattered because it had a big picture of the Shah. Then the studio was looted. Fearing the mob, shopkeepers tore down their own royal pictures and hurled them into the street. Groups with picks and shovels started hacking at statues of the Shah and his father. The majority of Iranians felt like Mossadegh. They preferred not to have to choose between their prime minister and their king. But events on the street smelt of republicanism, and republicanism in turn smelt of godlessness and communism. Here, in the rioting and the affray, lay an opportunity for Roosevelt's agents and General Zaghi. That agent provocateur would stir up a two-day. Anti-government newspapers would portray the prime minister as a ruler, as a rebel against his king and as a two-day stooge. They would quietly secure the support of key army units in the capital. Finally, they would bribe the mob to come out in support of the Shah. 
the two day was sorry there we are the two day responded to events just as the plotters had hoped the communists believed that Iran was on the cusp of change and that they should not be left behind if there was to be a republic it should be the two day not Mossadegh's nationalists who should bring it into being on August the 19th, groups of two-day supporters came into the streets, wearing their regulation white shirts and shouting for a democratic republic. Then they rampaged through the city. Signs were torn down. Here they are in an earlier, better-behaved demonstration. Reza Shah's mausoleum was attacked and his statue upended with a crane. The following day, state factories were paralyzed by demonstrations to demand the release of communists from jail. Infiltrated by Roosevelt's agent provocateur, the two-day smashed the windows of mosques and begged for the expulsion of U.S. diplomats. The CIA had handed its hirelings tens of thousands of dollars to generate crowds to riot through the capital. The impression was of a rampant two-day on a collision path with all that traditional Iran held dear. It wasn't until after lunch on the 18th but Mossadegh took notice of the disorder. He ordered the security forces to stop the demonstrations. He also gave instructions for anyone calling for a republic to be pursued judiciously. judicially. The viscerally anti-communist security forces reacted with zeal. Trucks, trucks screeched around the capital, disgorging armed men who turned on the, on the protesters with savage joy. With his anti-two-day measures, Mossadegh was signaling that he would not become hostage to the communists and their demands. But the two-day was the most disciplined force standing between him and defeat, and he was taking them out of the game. At about 6 p.m. that evening, there was a dramatic meeting between Mossadegh and Lloyd Henderson, the American ambassador. It's remarkable, given the abundant evidence to suggest that America had, had, had been involved in the earlier coup attempt that Mossadegh even agreed to meet him. It's likely that he was hoping for crumbs of comfort and some guidance on future constitutional arrangements, but Henderson gave him none. The American made it clear that the United States regarded Zahedi as the country's legal prime minister and the Shah still as its head of state. Eight o'clock on the morning of August the 19th, found the interior minister, Ghulam Hussein Sadiqi, preparing for elections to the, Re the Regency Council. News came that groups of people had gathered in Sipa Square and were shouting for the Shah. The police were urging them on. Sadiqi ordered a junior to take a ministry car and to, to investigate, but the keys could not be found. He telephoned the chief of police, who professed complete ignorance of events. Then General Riahi, the head of the armed forces, phoned to say that the chief of police had been sacked. The situation in South and Central Tehran was deteriorating. Several groups, two or three hundred strong, had been disgorged by a military truck and were on the move around the bazaar. There was a fight outside the parliament building between royalists and government supporters. The security forces sat and watched. Roosevelt's local agents led rioters to the premises of pro-two-day newspapers, a communist theatre, and the headquarters of several pro-Mossadegh newspapers and political parties. They were plundered and burned. 
At about 10 a.m., another group had set out from the fruit and vegetable wholesale market in South Tehran, recruited from the Houses of Strength, traditional sports clubs with links to the mall. These muscle-bound wrestlers were led by the celebrated mob leader Teyeb Hajrizai and carried knives, clubs, and pictures of the Shah. The most picturesque column was constituted of prostitutes with names like Sugarlip Zainab and Saucer-Eyed Azam. The mob commandeered buses and trucks and forced passing drivers to turn on their headlights and honk in support of the Shah. In the administrative heart of the city, the marchers forced their way into official buildings where they pinned the Shah's picture to the walls. Sahibi saw them from his window in the interior ministry and phoned the martial law administrator to ask why they were not being impeded. We don't trust our own men, came the reply. The mayor of Tehran called Sadiqi and told him that the mayoralty had been overrun and the security forces were doing nothing. In Rome, Shah Mohammad Reza Pahavi was unaware of any of this. While he sipped his morning coffee at the Hotel Excelsior, the tide rolled north. Something extraordinary was happening. A centralised modern government of men with French PhDs was being challenged by gangs of cutthroats while the army and police looked on. From the side of the road, students, civil servants and other citizens looked on, dumbfounded. Still, it was hard to believe that this movement could amount to very much. The crowds were not particularly big, and many streets were unaffected. Everyone with a radio tuned in. The 12.30pm bulletin concentrated exclusively on foreign news. When would Mossadegh call his supporters into the streets to sweep the trash away? Several times before and during the events of August the 19th, Mossadegh rejected offers of armed intervention in his favour. This was in keeping with his character and politics. He was instinctively a pacifist. I have already alluded to his distrust for the communists today. But this does not explain why he refrained from using the massive popular support which remained at his disposal. Why was there no declaration from Palace Street, no word from the nationalist parties? Why did he stay, why did he stay transfixed as a sedition snowballed and eventually overwhelmed him? At least until the late morning of August the 19th, Mossadegh seems not to have taken the disturbances very seriously. Riots and affray had been features of Tehran for the past four days. Why should this be any different? Also, he had an exaggerated faith in the willingness of the security forces to quell the crowds. But the men, the men who had pummeled the communists the previous night would not pummel citizens marching in the name of the Shah. Crucially, the army was full of officers who had pledged allegiance to the prime minister, but who now were switching sides. The Shah's supporters would call events of August the 19th a popular uprising in favour of the monarchy. In fact, it was a military coup with the fate of the government decided by men in uniform. As events gathered momentum, colonels either kept their men out of the way or steered them towards benevolent neutrality. One major left led a successful attack on the police jail. From noon onwards, the mobs took their orders from the army and the police. At 2.30pm, Ghulam Hussein Sadiqi abandoned the interior ministry and drove to 109 Palace Street. 
He found the Prime Minister huddled on the first floor with his shell-shocked inner circle and the street itself defended by tanks and troops. From about noon, hostile groups of civilians and soldiers had been advancing on Mossadegh's house, only to be scattered by the defenders. The Prime Ministerial Guard had taken over a four-storey building, dominating the northern entrance to Palace Street, and there were machine gun nests in the Prime Minister's own compound. From these positions, the Guard responded with fusillades of their own. Mossadegh's wife and her servants were among the last people to leave the house before the siege was complete. Mossadegh's colleagues and allies sat or rested. Sedeghi said he was hungry and a servant brought, brought bread and jam and tea. I had just put in my second mouthful, he recalled, when I heard the sound of a commotion and a struggle from the radio in the next room. Everyone gathered round the set. There was more commotion followed by a long silence. Then it was announced that the government had fallen and that the Shah was on his way home. These were lies, of course, but who was to know? The radio had replaced the pulpit as the country's chief means of communication and propaganda, and Mossadegh had taken no special measures to protect it. The radio station had fallen with the loss of just three lives. Mossadegh was sitting on his bed. Suddenly he let out a wail, and the others rushed in and found him weeping bitterly. He was crying because the radio had announced that Fatemi and another ally had been killed. This too was a lie. Then Brigadier Riyahi phoned. He was choking with emotion. He announced that all strategic locations in the city had fallen and that there was no point continuing the struggle. At 5pm, Riyahi left, left his post and went into hiding. By then, the military equation in Palace Street had changed in favour of the Putschists. Mossadegh received the commander of the attackers, who advised him to resign. He, ref he refused, but he did agree to the raising of a white flag. The shelling only intensified. The radio announced that Mossadegh had resigned. Another line. At 5.25, General Zahedi broadcast to the nation. He declared that he was the country's legal prime minister, named by the Shah. The occupants of 109 Palace Street were now unable to communicate with the outside world. They were utterly alone. Mossadegh waited to die. He sat on his bed in a pair of grey pyjamas. Around him were some of his closest allies. They had gathered that morning to consult and aid their master. Now they sat in his stifling little room with its protective iron door shut onto the corridor outside. A few hours earlier, these same men had been giants, striding into a new epoch. Now they were alone, debased, sitting or slouching around the famous bed. As the bullets slammed into the brickwork and ricocheted off the metal roof, and the dust from the ruined perimeter walls swirled around them. There was a hideous clang when a bullet smashed through the window of the Prime Minister's meeting room and into the iron door. What did they think as they looked down at the abyss? Did they suffer for themselves and their families, or for the country they had served and failed? Each had reason to regret. Perhaps now, in the awful pause before oblivion, they found humility. Mossadegh was... Mossadegh. He was thinking of how best to serve the moment. If I'm murdered, he declared, it will be more useful for the country and the people than if I stay alive. 
Here was a manifesto for martyrdom. Even his thoughts of death were quintessentially Persian. Suddenly the window behind Mossadegh's head shattered. The others dragged the bed away from it. They implored Mossadegh to move out of the bedroom and into another room, further from the line of fire. There might even be a chance of escaping over the wall. These proposals seemed to irritate Mossadegh. He insisted he would stay. He had no such expectations of his comrades. I implore you, gentlemen, he said. Go wherever, go wherever you want to go. Mossadegh must have known that they would not leave him. Another ally, Mahmoud Nadiman, suggested mass suicide. Why are we sitting here waiting for those lowlifes to come and get us, he said. Mossadegh angrily rejected his idea, and his own and Nariman's revolvers were locked in a safe. Over the next few minutes, Mossadegh had a change of heart. He came round to the majority view in favour of flight. It was only a matter of time before the attackers launched their final assault. Perhaps he did not want to die after all. Perhaps he decided that the men around the bed should be saved so that they could carry on and perpetuate his ideals. After another near miss, he agreed that they should all move to another room. His companions helped him out of the bedroom. Now there was hope. With Mossadegh on his feet, everyone thought of escape. The eastern extremity of 109 Palace Street was adjacent to other houses set in gardens and the attackers had been unable to approach it. The party came out into the garden by the eastern wall. There were twelve in all, and they were joined by six of the defenders, three of them covered in blood. They let a ladder against the perimeter wall, and some of them went over. Then it was Mossadegh's turn. He stood at the foot of the ladder and remembered the brave colonel who had taken charge of the defence. The colonel was summoned from his post and he vowed not to throw down his weapon until Mossadegh was out of danger. Mossadegh said, God bless your mother's milk. Then the Prime Minister was helped up the ladder and over the wall. The following day, he delivered himself to the new government. We all know what happened after that, of Mossadegh's trial, his imprisonment until his death in 1967, and of the Shah's increasingly pitiless dictatorship. And yet there is no sense that this sequence of events was in any way inevitable or preordained. For Iran after August 1953, it is possible to imagine a rather different history. As a Middle Eastern leader, Mossadegh was ahead of his time in his understanding of freedom and human dignity. He was surrounded by talented men. If inexperienced, he might have taken the country forward and held its democracy to mature. He was one of those figures who defy the truism that history is about social movements, not individuals. No one else could have galvanized the country to nationalize oil, expel the British, and withstand a vicious embargo. embargo. And the same qualities of obstinacy and adherence to, to principle led just as surely to his downfall. That makes Mossadegh not a great politician, not a great strategist, but a moral leader of enduring resonance. Mossadegh was, as an Iranian friend told me in Tehran a few months ago, a footnote in the history of the decline of the British Empire. It was a footnote also in the story of America's transformation from a naive, well-regarded newcomer to a cynical and manipulative superpower. Almost overnight in August 1953, America's reputation crashed, and it has never fully recovered. 
Who would have thought that Roosevelt and his colleagues, whose exploits acquired the status of a textbook operation, might have made a terrible mistake? Seven years after the coup, a New York Times correspondent, Kenneth Love, who had himself played a part in the coup, ruefully foresaw the negative effects that its involvement would, that, that the coup would have on, on, it, on American foreign policy. At the conclusion of a fascinating account of the coup and his role in it, Love concluded ruefully, Iranians are well aware of the American role, although the American public is not. Thus it may be that many Iranians hold the United States responsible for creating and supporting a regime that they believe has become an increasingly maligned influence on the country. The lessons of Mossadegh I'm glad to say have been partly learned. As the US reaction to the Arab upheavals of 2011 showed, there is no longer an appetite in this country for the kind of intervention that perverts the course of history and creates unbounded ill will into the future. The tragedy is that the place where this reverse precedent was set, Iran, remains locked in a poisonous conflict with the United States. It's time for that to end, but the necessary statesmanship is nowhere in sight. Many thanks. Stay and ask questions. <laughs> I'd be very happy to take them. How, 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 how strict do I need to be with our questions? You don't need to be strict. I don't need to be strict, right. I'm not used to choosing questions. It's a privilege I've never really had. Um, with your, your, I saw you um, listening attentively, so you could be the first. Um, although it's hard to tell, but if... Oh, maybe I should give you this. No, that's no, okay. I can't that. Although it's hard to tell, but if Mossadegh had taken a more compromising position or approach, do you think things would have been different today? Um, the question was, if Mossadegh had taken a more compromising approach, do you think things would have, would have turned out differently and would they be different now? I think the answer is yes, and I was discussing this just um, before the talk with and my feeling and his feeling, I think, is that um, Mossadegh did have several important opportunities during the process um, that started with the nationalization of oil. Several times during um, the negotiations that followed, at least to test the British will and the British, the British goodwill. The British were under enormous pressure from the United States to do a deal um, certainly at the beginning of the negotiation process. And I think there were several moments that one could identify and say that at that time Mossadegh should have used the enormous goodwill that he'd, um, that he'd created for himself around the country in order to do a deal. And we know that, even today, we know that the idea of doing a deal is, um, particularly if you've spent a great deal of time propagandizing against the person you want to do a deal with, is a very, very difficult thing. It exposes you politically at home. Um, and Mossadegh had this, this great national conscience. He, he felt himself, I think, to be, um, to incarnate a lot of Iranian Persian values. And he would not do a deal 
unless he felt that um, nationalisation was going to be uh, respected, not simply in the spirit of nationalisation, but also in the letter. And I think um, there were times when he could have done, and he should have done. And that's really the tragedy that he didn't. Yes? So, uh, just building up on, on the last question, the, the premise of the question was that if he compromised, maybe a deal could have been struck, but he didn't. And as a result, what would have happened, in your opinion, if the coup had not occurred? I mean, he wasn't compromising, and let's say that the coup, as organized by Britain and the US, didn't occur. What would have been the prospects? And I know it's sort of... Uh, reading the teens, but someone who's uh, spent their time studying this subject, I'm interested to know what you would take with me. Well, it is, of course, highly speculative, and is, if I were a scholar of any note, I would say there's no way I'm willing to comment on that. But since I'm a mere journalist, I can, um, <laughs> I can have a go. Um, the, you do, when you're reading about Mossadegh, and when you're writing a book like this, you spend all a great deal of time thinking, what if he'd done that, or what if that had turned out differently, and, and how would Iran have been different? Um, there are certain things... I can, I can give you... I can perhaps um, signpost a few things that should be borne in by mind when we consider this question. The first is that Mossadegh was old, ailing. His health was not good. He was extremely stressed. Um, he was uh, erratic by the end of his... Premiership. Um, the second is that the Iranian economy was suffering greatly. It was not on the point of collapse, but it was suffering greatly. And the question has to be asked for how long could he continue to ask people to shoulder these burdens? Um, another thing that, it's, that is worth bearing in mind is that he had began a series of reforms um, that were designed to, to change Iran. I mean, these things, these reforms that um, he had begun, um, for example, um, uh, order, uh, uh, preparing for provincial elections in which women would have participated. And that would have been extremely important from the perspective of, of um, women's rights in Iran. Um, the, eco the, economic, uh, the, the, the economy of resistance, as is now called, was, there was a, a precursor in Iran at the time. The idea of self-sufficiency. The idea, um, uh, also he was uh, certainly in favour of um, some form of land reform. Uh, there was a strong social democratic component to his second government. The people in it um, were, uh, they lent towards a socialistic view of the economy and the way of ordering society. But having said that, Mossadegh was alien. He would have had to pass the reins at some stage. Would he have been able to, to, to coexist with the Shah? He should have done, and, he, and I think he could have done. The Shah was deluded of authority, he had been defanged, he was no longer ambitious for um, power, he, was, he, he, he simply wanted to survive. And Mossadegh had this, I think, an, an opportunity to show largesse to the Shah um, from a position of strength that he did not, because he had lost all faith in the Shah and he'd lost all trust in him. It's a question of trust. It's, it goes back to this question of, of the individual being so important in this story. So, from this garbled answer, you'll have no idea what would have happened. But I think these things should be borne in mind. Um, the idea of his, of, his, of his own physical and mental frailty, 
the, the men who are around him, the state of the, of the economy, all of these would have complicated anything that, um, that Mossadegh tried to do. If he had done a deal, of course, things would have been different. You'd have had revenues coming into the country, you'd have had um, American goodwill, um, perhaps he could, have, um, he could have renegotiated Iran's place in the world. But we are flying on the, on the winds of, uh, of um, enjoyable but perhaps fruitless speculation. Um, yes? Assuming that he had compromised and had struck a deal with the US, do you really uh, think that the US would have put up with any, any unacceptable uh, request on the part of Iran? What I'm trying to say is that given the, given the climate of this country, starting from about 1900, and now we're talking about 1950s, do you think they would have allowed any kind of democratic <coughs> movement to uh, come about, given the importance of Iran to, to the West, because of its natural resources. Do you think... Well, at the beginning, uh, I, that's a very interesting question. Um, I suppose you're asking whether the United States was sincere in their promotion, in their rhetorical promotion of democracy in the Middle East. The most important thing, clearly, for them was to keep communism at bay. And after Mossadegh's ouster, um, Lloyd Henderson, the ambassador I referred to in, in my talk, um, recommended very clearly that the Shah should um, install a non-democratic government, that dem democracy was not what was needed. But at the same time, at the beginning of Mossadegh's tenure, I think the Americans thought they had found in Mossadegh someone who could answer all their needs, both keep communism at bay and also um, uh, nudge Iran towards in a more democratic um, direction. I don't, I don't subscribe to a view that the Americans were inherently cynical and that they weren't interested in democracy. They were. But they were also interested in communism. And as we saw when push came to shove, the fear of communism was a more powerful impetus for them. Yeah. So I have a couple of questions. One regarding the role of the clerics. Afterwards, there was a lot of talk, even especially during the latter stages of trust regime, about the cooperation between red and the blacks, the blacks being the clerics and the red being the communists. And then, yet, at the time of the coup, there was, um, according to a lot of researchers, it would not have been possible without the help, direct help from Kashani. And not just Khashoggi, but the whole cleric establishment there. So um, that's one issue. The second is the, um, since you're a journalist, we, as we know, there are some pages in the CIA document that was actually revealed and it's based on most of the research that people are doing as far as trying to figure out what happened in that era that's still blacked out. And that's, well, is over the time that it is normal for that type of thing, 30 years, sometimes 40 years, and now, you know, we are in the 60 range. 
uh, are you or anybody, as far as you know, is making any effort to make those uh, white uh, blackouts actually clear? And what is your speculation on what, what lies behind? To 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 um, just fill in people who may not be as well acquainted with what we're talking about. The, the, the contention is that, in fact, Mossadegh was, for a long time, uh, sustained by clerical support, and he wouldn't have been able to count on support of the ordinary man and woman in, in the street were it not for um, the support given to him by clerics, and in particular, Ayatollah Koshani. It's, it's very interesting, the, the relationship, it's fascinating, actually, the relationship between Mossadegh and the clerics, because he did have a very fruitful alliance with Koshani in particular. Um, Koshani had enormous political influence. He was not a great scholar. Um, he was certainly junior to others in Pond, for example. But he did have a rabble-rousing, um, a yen for rabble-rousing. He, he, he loathed the British um, for personal and for political reasons. And he had a great um, talent at getting the mobs out onto the street when Mossadegh needed them the most. And this meant that Koshani thought that he had, that Mossadegh was his. And he thought that the movement was his. And when Mossadegh um, started showing less deference to him and uh, not asking him um, about, not consulting him on things that he thought he should be consulted on, uh, Koshani took umbrage. And he gradually withdrew his support from Mossadegh and turned against him. And what is interesting is the one or two flashpoints when this confrontation, this growing confrontation between Kashani and Mossadegh, really became apparent. Mossadegh demonstrated that he didn't actually need Kashani. And at the end, particularly as Mossadegh began to gather powers that were considered dictatorial at the end of his tenure, he was citing um, national emergency, and he was gathering plenary powers into his hands, steamrolling things um, through the parliament um, that have been subsequently and rightly um, considered anti-democratic. Koshani came out very strongly against them, and people just simply didn't follow him, and in the end he had to, he had to back down. Um, I think Mossadegh didn't, I, I think that Koshani's appraisal of things was wrong, and after Mossadegh's um, toppling, uh, Koshani was never really rehabilitated in the public eye. He, he never acquired that same authority that he had enjoyed during Mossadegh's period. I think it's, it's a fascinating question and a good one to, definitely a good one to ask. On, on, I can tell you that I, as a Brit, I tried to get MI6 material and you don't even get the blackouts. I mean, if you can see a page with blacked out material um, from the CIA, you're doing well, but in Britain, they're just so together. There is no date, there is, it is entirely at the discretion of the British um, uh, establishment as to when or whether material to do with the 1953 coup is made public. And I suspect that it may never be made public because they have. I think nothing to gain from making it public. It will not show the Brits in a very flattering light. Yeah. 
I wonder, uh, do you see any analogs or parallels between those times and today? Embargo in place, Iran a pariah, um, a threat, and so on. Oh, they're definitely, definitely parallels. Sorry, because you have you finished your no, question? No, that, that no they're, they're, they're definitely parallels. I was thinking of one today. I was th actually thinking of a difference today because when um, Mossadegh nationalized oil, the oil industry was so concentrated in the hands of, of the Seven Sisters, as, as they were called, BP and Royal Dutch Shell, and then the five US majors, that um, the sense of solidarity between the seven was such that they all agreed that they wouldn't buy or have anything to do with Iranian oil. So the, the embargo was complete, it was total. Um, now we have a, a situation where America and its allies is trying to impose an embargo and has had a certain success, but still, it's very patchy. And that shows, the first thing it shows is that, is that the oil industry is far more variegated, it's far more decentralized, there are far more smaller players um, that are involved and that cannot be corralled um, into line in quite the same way that the Seven Sisters were back then. It's, it's interesting, of course, that um, nowadays the, uh, the nuclear issue is held up and, and, and presented almost as if it were a, a, a replay of the oil issue. The oil issue. We're talking about energy, energy independence. We're talking about a country achieving its true autonomy, country achieving uh, a genuine ability to take its own strategic decisions. So a lot of the rhetoric is similar, even if, um, as I'm sure you know, um, the current authorities disliking Mossadegh because of his secular outlook very rarely invoke his memory or are um, flashing about his memory. Um, I think there are, there are more parallels that, that one could go into. Um, I think the important thing from where I'm sitting is that 1953 began this sort of dismal process um, which 1979 um, then perpetuated. Um, and I think what's what, what's, what's important is that, and what remains, is a, is a sense among Iranians that whatever they think about nuclear, um, the nuclear program or the ins and outs of negotiations or that sort of thing, there is still a, a, a residual and a strong sense that they would like to take these decisions themselves. And again, thinking back to Mossadegh in the United Nations when he said to um, uh, when he replied to Gladwin Jebin, he said, Iran has stationed no gunboats in the Thames. It is, you know, if you're sitting in Tehran and you look out into the Persian Gulf and you see American um, warships steaming up and down, and then you think of the Gulf of Mexico, there aren't any, the, the Sephar don't have any gunboats in, in, in the Gulf of Mexico. And yet we hear all the time about what an extraordinary threat Iran is to world peace. These things have to be kept in perspective. It's important to remember these little, these, these little inconsistencies. Um, yes? Considering all the pros and cons uh, as a journalist, do you call Mossad as a hero? Well, I'd say that Mossad is, uh, is someone that I personally admire very much, and that I felt um, at the end of two and a half, three years of 
living with him, I felt I um, I felt close to him. I felt that um, uh, perhaps had we sat down, um, he might have uh, he might have suspended his intense dislike of, of Britain for a few minutes to have a chat with me. <laughs> At the same time, I don't have, um, because I'm not Iranian, I, he's not a polarizing figure, he's not a problematic figure for me. Um, I don't stand either this side or that side of, of the divide. That I know that people judge him very much if you're Iranian. He's very, many, many people think he's a villain, many people think that he's a saint. I neither think he's a villain or a saint, but I do think he's a considerable figure. And I think that, as I said, he's a moral force. He, 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 he shows, an, he's an example of, um, in some ways, of how politics should not be conducted, but in other ways of how politics should be conducted, which is with a real sense of, of empathy for the common man and the common woman, and a real sense of, um, uh, of patriotic endeavor, um, without, um, Without, uh, I mean, he was a, he was a very civilized man in many ways, and a lot of a lot of things about him I, I admire and appreciate. Is there a chairman who can end this? Do you want may I? Do you want me to do you want me to end it? Well, some of us have to go someplace else. Okay, should we just have one more question? Anybody who wants to go, I'm not the chairman, but I declare freedom. Anyone wants to go? <laughs> that um, he got the impression very strongly that they were being harsh to him 
directly, directly harking back to 1953 and the coup. It was their way of, of, of taking their revenge. Yeah. So I'm actually curious to know what prompted you to take on this project and delve into the subject and, and what, what did you hope to accomplish by revisiting this chapter in Iranian history? Um, well, Mossadegh has been written about at length. Um, in English, he has... Um, there are books about the coup. There are, um, both by historians and non-historians, there are books... Um, there are political biographies that have been written about him. And in Persian, there's an immense amount that is either about him or about the coup or about his time in power. And this is constantly being added to. So you might ask, just why, you know, what could I hope to achieve? I think um, I tried to write something. I, one of the one of the problem with some of the books that have been written, some of the books that have been written in English are now quite old, and a great deal has been added to our store of knowledge. So I wanted to write something that incorporated what we know to date, and some of them have been written by non-Persian speakers, and that. That simply seemed to me to be um, really leaving out the sort of heart of the matter, which is what is written in Persian about this subject. And I wanted to combine the two. A lot of the people who write in Persian don't have access to the English sources. A lot of people who write in English don't have access, access to the Persian sources. And then there's simply the idea of this, this cultural oddity that exists in the Anglo-Saxon world, which is the, the, the phenomenon of the biography. It's not something that exists in Iran to anything like the same degree. It is an Anglo-Saxon phenomenon, and for some reason we like it. We like describing um, a cradle to grave, an experience. We like following someone from the moment they were born to the moment that they die. And we've, somehow we find that fulfilling, and I've certainly found it fulfilling. Um, so Your target audience would have been the people in the West, obviously. Yeah. And, and, and what did you hope to do in introducing Mossadegh to that Well, I wanted to tell them a little bit about Iran that they didn't know. I wanted to tell them to, for those who've never heard his name, I wanted to remind, um, remind them of, of, of who he was and why he's important. And I wanted to, as I said in, at the beginning, there's this very strange idea that a book about someone who lived so long ago could somehow be topical, and, and that, that attracted me. It seems, um, you know, people, a lot of people read this book to, to learn more about Iran now than to learn um, specifically about Iran then. So it seemed to me on several levels to be something worth, worth doing. More ladies, more ladies. <laughs> yes? Uh, Abdushik Zaridi talks about his father as a hero, and he thinks that Mossadegh is that hero, his father is hero. What do you think? Um, well, I disagree. Um, Abdushik is a, is a is a considerable considerable person, and he has debated um, in a very civilized manner with me on this, um, and. I enjoyed it greatly, but I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that um, uh, the Shah was brought back from Rome by a spontaneous uprising. Um, and I'm not convinced that um, the, 
that, that the Americans didn't have a crucial role. They did. They played the, cru the crucial role. And um, I think Ardashir and Fazlullah were, um, were played by, by foreigners as much as they played foreigners. Um, I, I, I disagree with them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if I were to go to Iran today and talk to uh, a group of millennials, people, let's say, born after 1990, from now about 20 years old, what would they say about this period to me? The question was, if I were to talk to young people in Iran born after 1990, what would they say about, about this period? Well, it's interesting because Mossadegh isn't taught in schools, and the streets that were named after him are no longer named after him. And there was a time after the revolution when it became free to talk about him, and so people were renaming their kebab houses, Mossadegh kebab house, and all this. And, and um, his name, he was on stamps, and, and, but then that didn't last very long. So he was slightly erased from, from the collective memory. But um, there has been this, this steady trickle of publications about him, people writing their memoirs, um, historical monographs. Um, so at a certain level, there is a, there is a degree of, of scholarly activity about Mossadegh in this period, which is going on in Iran. For those outside that slightly elite, rarefied group, than ordinary young Iranians, I think most of them, or many of them, despite the fact that they're not taught about him at school, know very well who he is, they know. For him, he is the symbol of um, a thwarted Iranian ambition, unjustly thwarted Iranian ambition. And, um, and I think a lot of them feel very strongly about him. Uh, yes. Um, so I've got a question about Operation Ajax. Uh, based on what I've read, several books from CIA were directly, uh, uh, they, they directly contributed to the actual coup. Now, what was not clear, based on what I read, was that who actually came up with the blueprint, based on what you've read, right? Who came up with the blueprint? Because I even hear that it started actually a few months back right, discussions between Tehran and between Washington in terms of how they want to approach it, how they want to go to the planet. Who do you think was the main mastermind and then who were some of the key figures or anything else that you want well, to Well, the, 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 the coup grew out of a British plan to, to destabilize and use unconstitutional means to get rid of Mossad. And that, we think, was originally proposed by a very distinguished Iran scholar in London called Nancy Lampton. And she recommended Zaina, who I mentioned in the talk, who was um, also an academic. I don't want to be nasty about academics. Um, so he was dispatched to Tehran where he'd been before and he, uh, the idea then I don't think was a violent military coup. It was to use British influence, um, propaganda, bribery, um, the dark arts, to, to, to get rid of him um, quasi-constitutionally. The British were expelled in 1952. Mossadegh 
had enough and, and saw that all this was going on. So he said the only way to stop it is to shut the embassy and get rid of all the Brits. So he did that. That left the Americans. And shortly after that, a British intelligence um, officer went to Washington and he explained this plan that was had, it was developed in some ways in some ways it needed more development and he presented this plan to the Americans and said we can't carry it out why don't we and so it went from there and uh, the fact that it succeeded I think depended a great deal on Roosevelt's personal qualities, his, his tenacity, and um, his invention. Because it really looked as though the coup was dead in the water. He was, he was being called back. They said, um, get on the next plane out. And he, he didn't follow that advice, and he tried again. But the plan was, it was a, it was a British, in, it, it, was a, it was an Anglo-American plan. Yes? legality. 
Not that that was to Mossadegh's advantage, no. Mossadegh's allies were elected in the teeth of the Shah's opposition. I mean, it was a horrible election, that election. But still, despite the apparatus of um, the army and the Shah and all his friends being deployed against Mossadegh in that election, there was sufficient number of Mossadegh supporters who came in, and then Mossadegh's political skill enabled nationalization to go through Parliament. Parliament is, well, it was, a, it was a flawed institution. He wanted to make it less flawed, and, of course, events intervened. Towards the end of his time in power, he contributed to the degradation of Parliament because he no longer trusted it, and he knew that it was working unconstitutionally against him. I suppose you could say that he used unconstitutional means to fight against an institution that was itself um, using unconstitutional means. Uh, do you have to stop? We have to stop. The bookstore is going to be closing in a few minutes. It's going to be closed. So I thought if anybody wants to get the book, you have about For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.